Hopefully you all have your notes there for the message this morning and can see that we'll be continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Remember this section of the Sermon on the Mount has been introduced with Jesus teaching about how he's come to fulfill the law and not to set it aside. And all these are examples in chapter 5, what are called these six antitheses, which begin with something like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. All these are examples of how Jesus, as the fulfiller of the law, brings out the true teaching of the law that is in some ways obscured by the scribes and Pharisees. And remember in verse 20, he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's going to talk about a righteousness that exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the kind of genuine righteousness that God expects of his people. And so we have these comparisons with the way that the scribes and Pharisees would teach. And sometimes what they say sounds really good until you realize that Jesus is condemning them for only telling us part of the truth and not all of it. Uh, And so as the great fulfiller of the law, he brings out all the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures about these various issues. And so we've looked at three of these antitheses before. Uh, We talked about anger and uh, adultery in the heart and marriage and the issue of divorce last week. And this week we're going to get into this matter of oaths. A very important part of Jewish culture and in some ways an important part of our own culture today, taking of oaths. I'll begin reading in verse 33 and read through verse 37 where our Lord Jesus says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. That's a pretty good teaching so far as it goes. Uh, But we're going to see that the problem Jesus has isn't so much with that statement, it's that they understand that statement in a certain way. (laughs) And in a way that doesn't give full justice to all of the teaching of Scripture. So in verse 34, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So here he's getting into the way that they like to take oaths. So when they say, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord, Jesus is now talking about the kind of oaths they mean. And he says, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. I like I think a few people have helped me make some of my hair white. But but, uh, then he says in verse 37, But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the time that we've had to come and worship you this morning. And think again about your sovereign rule over all things that all things happen in accordance with your will. And there are, there's a great mystery here for us. We don't understand uh, how evil can be in this world. And yet you're sovereign even over it in such a way that you're not guilty of any evil. We don't understand. There are so many mysteries for us finite people when we think about you, our infinite God. But we know you. 
and we trust you as the sovereign Lord. And we're glad that you're in control of everything in our lives. We're glad that we can count on you, our all-powerful, all-knowing God, in every circumstance of life. We're so glad that you have condescended to love us as our creator, to save us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're so glad that you have a plan for our lives and that we can trust you to work out that plan by your grace and for your glory. And now, Lord, we we thank you also that we've come to know Christ because of your sovereign work of grace in our lives. That through the power of your spirit, we were enabled to see and to enter the kingdom. And we know that we can't understand these words before us this morning as we should without the constant aid of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us with understanding this morning, and that you would help us to grasp the lesson our Lord Jesus wants us to take away from his words. We ask these things, as always, for our good and for your glory, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of us are... I'm sure familiar with certain oaths that people take in our own culture or vows that that people make in our culture. In fact, many of us have taken such oaths or made such vows. Uh, For example, those of us who have given testimony in a courtroom are familiar with this oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That is an oath we're taking in the name of God. I've had to take that oath a few times giving testimony in court, and it's always a very serious thing when you do that. Um, Those of us who are married may be familiar with a vow that goes something like this, I take you to be my lawful wedded husband or wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife, depending on the case. Several of us here today, at least four of us that I know of, have also served in the U.S. military and are quite familiar with this oath. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. I, I, I believe I'm still bound by that oath that I took, or at least the first part of it, to protect, defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Since I'm no longer in active service, I, of course, don't have to worry about the Uniform Code of Military Justice or officers, right? That part of the oath is gone. That was temporary. I've taken all three of these oaths and vows myself. Many of us in this room have taken such oaths. But sadly, too many people take oaths like this all too lightly these days. It's a pretty common thing for people to swear to tell the truth and lie to Congress or in court, for example. It's happening all the time. People are getting away with it, so it's going to continue to happen a lot. Or at least people in a certain party seem to be getting away with it, but that's neither here nor there. Also, there are a lot of people these days have no problem at all going back on their wedding vows. We talked last week about the issue of divorce and how rampant that is in our culture. Those 
promises were made till death do us part. That's not true of too many people these days. They don't keep those oaths. But this isn't anything really new. People have always had a hard time keeping their word. Ever since the fall, that's been the case. And Jesus deals with this issue in the passage before us this morning. And he zeroes in on the fact that it's really about being trustworthy when you say things. That's what God really cares about. And that you shouldn't have to be the kind of people that swear an oath in order to be believed. Right? Of course, we live in a culture of people who, unless we swear an oath, might not believe us because they're so distrusting, even if we are truthful people. And so oaths are still going to be necessary in some cases, such as in court. Jesus deals with this, and he tries to get right at the heart of the issue, I believe, as always. And he begins by citing the common teaching of the Jewish leaders in his day, which, as I said before in reading the text, is a pretty good statement on the surface until you see how he reacts to it, and you realize they understand this statement in a particular way that he doesn't approve of. So in verse 33, we read, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Sounds like a really good thing, right? Um, But when Jesus says that you here, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he wasn't talking specifically about what the Old Testament teaches, as we'll see, because when he reacts to this statement, you can see he's clearly reacting to the way the scribes and Pharisees mean the statement, right? He was then talking about how the scribes and Pharisees are summarizing and stating the teaching of the Old Testament in a context in which it has a certain kind of meaning. Now, in order to understand the difference between the two, especially when we get to Jesus' reaction in verse 34 and following, I think it's very helpful to consider to remind ourselves about what the Old Testament teaching really is. And so I've given you these texts, and if you want to just listen to me read them rather than flip through your Bibles, at least you have them there to look at later yourselves. But here's Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, swearing an oath in the name of God with no intention of fulfilling it would certainly be one way of taking his name in vain. Right? This is, to be sure, why God later denounced this very thing on a couple of other occasions. For example, in Leviticus 19.12, pardon me, he says this, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So it's taking his name in vain, it's profaning his name to swear an oath falsely by his name. So if we were to go to court and say, I swear to tell the whole truth, so help me God, and we didn't have any intention of doing that, we would be taking his name in vain. We would be profaning his name, right? Number 30, verse 2 says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. There it's adding a little bit here. When you make an oath, you don't just fulfill that oath in part. You fulfill it completely, right? 
You keep all of your word. So you have to be very careful when you make an oath. Because if you make an oath in the name of God, you've got to fulfill all of it. Right? Now, I gave the example earlier of the oath I took when I joined the military. It's understood by our culture that part of that oath no longer applies to me since I'm no longer in active duty in the military. But I understand part of that oath is still applying to me because I'm still a citizen under the Constitution. And I swore an oath to defend that, right? And so I still think that's binding on me because I took that oath in the name of God. And everyone understood that that oath was a binding oath when I took it. So I to give you an example of one case where there's an understood limitation to part of the oath, right? Well, that can happen. But we've got to fulfill everything that everyone knows we're supposed to fulfill, right? When we're under, the understanding that we're entering into when we're taking such oaths. We can read in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Now here, there's a commandment that if you fear God, you will take oaths in his name. But here's the thing, if you fear God, you'll be very careful about taking oaths in his name, as we've seen. Right? You, you won't take oaths lightly in his name, and you'll be very careful not to do them falsely and to completely fulfill them. We read in Jeremiah twelve sixteen, and it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives. That's the way they're supposed to swear by his name or one of the ways. As they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. They become idolatrous and started swearing by the name of Baal. And God said, no, 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 no. <laughs> They've got to fear me and swear by my name. They've got to acknowledge me as the true God. So clearly, taking oaths was not considered to be wrong. Not when you look at the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it's considered to be a good, a righteous thing, a holy thing, even uh, a matter of worship, in a sense, to God. It was a good thing. Although, as we have seen, there were at least two serious sins that could be committed when taking oaths. As we've seen, taking an oath and failing to fulfill it was regarded as sin. And swearing falsely or lying under oath was regarded as sin. However, as we continue in our examination of Jesus' portrayal of the Jewish leader's teaching, we're going to see that they leave out one important thing that the Old Testament passages all stressed. Namely, the use of the name of the Lord. God said, you shall swear by my name. And when Jesus gets to the kinds of oaths they make, not one of them mentions the name of God. Now, why would somebody who knows that they're supposed to swear by the name of the Lord avoid doing it? Why would someone who knows when you swear by the name of the Lord that you have to swear truly and not falsely and you have to keep the oath that you've sworn, why would they try to avoid doing it, swearing by the name of the Lord? Well, it's because they want to be able to swear falsely. They want to be able to have an out. If somebody comes and says, well, you didn't keep your oath. Well, you know, I didn't swear by the name of the Lord, you know. Maybe that's one of the reasons they tried to avoid this particular part of God's word. We'll see what Jesus thinks as we move on, as I said. 
But Jesus is, is going to focus his attention here upon the kinds of oaths that the scribes and Pharisees had added to the law, as we'll see, and we've already seen our reading of the passage, and by which they had actually distorted the true intent of the law. And, and Jesus says the great fulfiller of the law is coming to make that intention clear once again to God's people. I think D.A. Carson does a very good job of describing the approach of the scribes and Pharisees at the time when Jesus taught this, when he writes that, quote, a sophisticated casuistry judged how binding an oath really was by examining how closely it was related to Yahweh's name. Incredible distinctions proliferate under such approach. Swearing by heaven and earth was not binding, nor was swearing by Jerusalem. Though swearing toward Jerusalem was, Only legalistic people could start thinking this way, right? That an entire Mishnaic tract is given over to the subject shows that such distinction became important. Uh, distinctions, rather, became important and were widely discussed. Now, a Mishnaic tract, the Mishnah was the written recollections of oral traditions of the rabbis and such. And so there was an entire Mishnaic writing devoted to all the different distinctions there were that you could make when making oaths and which ones were binding, which ones weren't. And so D.A. Carson is pointing out that's just evidence of how legalistic they had become and how really far from the intention of God's word they had gotten. It's this kind of legalism that Jesus is addressing in this passage and that becomes clear in what he says in the next few verses in verses 34 through 36 he says but I say to you do not swear at all neither by heaven for it is God's throne they're apparently making oaths in the name of heaven rather than God in their way to kind of sidestep that requirement nor by the earth for it is his footstool nor by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king who is God nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, notice that Jesus was not addressing the taking of oaths in the name of the Lord when he said, do not swear at all. Jesus knows that the Old Testament says you ought to take oaths in the name of the Lord. And he's not changing that. When he says you shall not swear at all, he explains the kind of swearing he's talking about in the examples that he gives, right? The kind of swearing they were doing. You shouldn't be doing that at all, he says. So when you say something, it sounds really good. You shall keep your vows, you know, to the Lord, your oaths to the Lord. That sounds really good. But when you unpack what they mean by that, it gets pretty bad, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He was addressing the various ways that the Jews in his day sought to get around the scriptures by swearing instead by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or even by their own head. Later on in the same gospel, Matthew records yet another instance when Jesus addressed this same problem as an example of hypocrisy on the part of the Pharisees. That's later in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. And that whole section in Matthew 23, I think if I were a Pharisee, I would really have been scared hearing this. Uh, hopefully by that time I would have repented of being a Pharisee and trusted in Christ. But if I hadn't, and I was a Pharisee, this would really scare me. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears 
by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. These are the kinds of things in these Mishnaic tracts that D.A. Carson was talking about that the Jews were banding about as potential ways of making oaths, right? He says, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, they say, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Jesus' response here shows that there is nothing we can swear by in the end that does not have some connection to God. So what he's pointing out is in their, in their attempts to avoid using the name of the Lord by speaking of all these things that are connected to him in some way or are created by him, he says they're really trying to dodge the name of the Lord. But Jesus says, in the end, really, that's not working anyway if God's the one who made it all. So attempting to swear by anything other than the name of the Lord really doesn't get around the scriptural requirement anyway in the way they seem to think it does. Jesus will go on in the Sermon on the Mount to show where such legalistic hair-splitting really comes from. Um, But notice what he says next in verse 37. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. As I thought about this verse and what it means in this context, it raised a couple of questions for me that I want to ask and answer with you in the hopes that you'll see why I understand all of this the way that I do. First, when Jesus said, do not swear at all, in verse 34, and let your yes be yes and your no, no, in verse 37, did he really intend to prohibit any and all oaths? Or did he intend to prohibit only the kinds of legalistic oaths taught by the scribes and Pharisees? Now, I've already tipped my hand there. I think that he means the kind of legalistic oaths because he spelled them out what he means, the kinds of oaths that he means. And so in seeking to answer this question, let's go back and look again at several factors we need to take into account. First, the context seems to indicate that Jesus was only prohibiting the legalistic oaths of the scribes and Pharisees. And notice again what is missing in each of the examples Jesus gives of the kind of swearing that he does forbid. There's no mention by him of taking an oath using the divine name. When he says, you shall not swear at all, and he gives examples of what he means, he doesn't say, you shall not swear by the name of the Lord. Um, So that's important to keep in mind. Instead, he just points out that they're making oaths using something other than the divine name in an apparent attempt to avoid the strict truth requirement in taking oaths. It did not really mitigate that requirement at all. So Jesus doesn't appear to be saying that taking an oath under God is wrong. I didn't sin when I took an oath to tell the truth when I went to court. Unless I didn't mean to tell the truth, right? Then I would have sinned. So Jesus is dealing with 
legalistic attempts to avoid truthfulness. That is sin. So when Jesus said to stop such nonsense and to let your yes be yes and your no, no, he was really saying that we should be the kind of people who don't have to resort to oaths in the first place in order to be believed. Our simple words should be good enough. And we should be so concerned about the truth that our word is good enough. Of course, we still live in a world in which people are, even though our word might be trustworthy, people may not trust it anyway, and there's always going to be a need then for oaths, right? We're never going to have a time when our government is going to stop requiring us to take an oath when we join the military. I don't think that's going to happen. Exactly. A second factor to consider, that's the scripture that we're reading here, yeah. yeah. The scripture, secondly, elsewhere plainly teaches that God himself has sworn oaths. So if Jesus can't be saying any and all oaths are sin, even though they didn't used to be, right, because they clearly weren't in the Old Testament. He can't be saying now they are because God has taken oaths. God can't sin. Uh, Genesis 22, 15 through 18 is an example of this. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, God kept that oath, and that's why we're saved, those of us who knew Christ, because God kept that oath. In Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, the author of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, speaking of Abraham, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, or the unchangeableness, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hope, or lay hold, rather, of the hope set before us. So the author of Hebrews gets into why did God swear this oath? For us. Right? To reassure us of his intentions to keep his promises. Because we live in a fallen world where we are more reassured by oaths. God of all people, his yes is yes and his no is no. Or God of all beings, rather. His yes is yes and his no is no, right? We can always trust his word without an oath. The author of Hebrews says he gave us an oath anyway because he wanted to reassure us fallen people, us sinful people, even saved people, sinners saved by grace. He wanted to reassure us. I think John Stott was surely correct when he wrote, if swearing is forbidden, why has God himself used oaths in scripture? 
Why, for example, did he say to Abraham, by myself I have sworn, I will indeed bless you. To this I think we must answer that the purpose of the divine oaths was not to increase his credibility, since God is not a man that he should lie, but to elicit and confirm our faith. The fault which made God condescend to this human level lay not in any untrustworthiness of his, but in our unbelief. That is true. God didn't swear this oath because he's untrustworthy. He swore this oath because of our unbelief. What a a gracious God we have. Uh, Thirdly, Scripture also tells us that Jesus himself testified under oath, such as when he was taken uh, to be tried before the Jewish leaders. And notice when we read this, Jesus did not refuse to be put under oath by the high priest. He didn't say, oh, no, no, we're not supposed to swear an oath. In Matthew 26, 62 through 64, we read this. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. He had the right to do this. And Jesus didn't say, you don't have the right to do that. And he didn't say, no, oaths are sin. The high priest, having said this, then said, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, Jesus didn't have a problem with being put under oath there, I would argue. I think John Stott has thus, again, rightly concluded that, quote, what Jesus emphasized in his teaching was that honest men do not need to resort to oaths. It was not that they should refuse to take an oath if required by some external authority to do so. Have you ever known somebody that says, um, you know, I swear this is the truth. I swear I'm telling you the truth. Or I'm not kidding. This is really true what I'm telling you. And they constantly have to remind you that they're telling you the truth. The more somebody does that to me, the more I distrust what they're saying. You ever found that to be the case? Jesus did too, apparently. (laughs) And he didn't like it. And he doesn't want us to be those kind of people. Fourthly, Scripture also tells us that the Apostle Paul had no problem taking an oath in God's name or making a vow to God. Uh, For example, in Acts 18.18, we're told Paul remained a good while, and then he took a leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had cut his hair off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. Apparently, this was at least akin to a Nazarite vow, because those are the kind of vows that would have you not cut your hair. Uh, But those vows are taken in the name of the Lord. Uh, Romans 1.9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing he make mention of you always in my prayer. Invoking the name of the God, God this way as your witness is the manner in which oaths would often be taken. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So these are kinds of ways that Jews might take an oath in the name of the Lord or make a vow in the name of the Lord. So we've seen good evidence here, not only from the immediate context of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but also from the rest of Scripture that taking oaths or making vows 
are not in themselves wrong or evil. In fact, they're good things. So there's no reason to think that Jesus was ruling out, taking those all together in the passage before us. We have to conclude instead, as I've already pointed out, that he was once again responding to Pharisaic legalism and that he was once again calling on his followers uh, to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. To take God at his word and follow it with a true heart and not to try to parse his word in positively Clintonian ways in order to write, try to avoid what it really says. Right? By Clintonian. You remember he said... Uh, Clinton said, it depends on the, way, the meaning of is, is, on one famous occasion, right? That was positively pharisaical. <laughs> Clintonian and pharisaical are the same words to me there. People still do it. Even powerful people still do it, is the point. Nothing's changed. People are still liars. And people try to find fancy ways to lie, right? And still look like they're telling the truth. Jesus doesn't want us to be that way. The true intention of God's word was that our word should be true when we give it. So that's the first question. What was he really intending to, right, to prohibit here? Hopefully I've convinced you of what I think is the right answer. A second question is, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, whatever is more than these, your yes be yes, your no be no, right? Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now that's the New King James translation there, the evil one. Uh, According to this translation, Jesus is saying that the need for oaths has come about in some way through the agency of the evil one, that is Satan, who is the father of lies. Um, That's what he would mean if you take it as the evil one here. Because of Satan's working in the world, the father of lies and so forth, all the sin that's come into the world because, right, of the fall and his agency in that and so forth, because of that, oaths have become a necessary thing. That would seem to be the intention. But it's also possible to translate the phrase a bit differently. For example, in the ESV it says, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And not the evil one, right? Uh, The New American Standard has it this way, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, if that's the best way to translate the text, and I don't have a dog in this fight, it could be the evil one or just evil here could be taken either way, and I'm not sure that there's a real difference in the meaning, ultimately, whichever way you take it. I think I prefer the second way a little bit better, but that's not a hill I'm going to die on. But if that's the best way, this other way to take it, that anything more than this comes from evil or is of evil, then Jesus is simply saying that the existence of evil in the world provided the reason for the origin of oaths in the first place. That's why they're here. And so in a world in which it is a good thing to take oaths under certain circumstances uh, because of evil, that's become something that has to happen sometimes, right? 
But we should want to be the kind of people whose yes or no is good enough. See, the kind of righteousness he's calling us to, right, is the kind of righteousness that goes against the grain of the world. I think this understanding of the text has led David Hagopian to appropriately write this, and this is a rather lengthy quotation, but I think it's helpful, so I'm going I'm to read it to you. But, says the opponent of oaths, how does your interpretation jive with Christ's teaching that anything more than a simple yes or no is of evil? The interpretation advanced in this article, which is almost exactly the interpretation I and most evangelical commentators have of this text, He writes, the interpretation advanced in this article is perfectly consistent with Christ's teaching when that teaching is properly understood. In the New Testament Greek, the genitive case is used when Christ says that anything beyond yes and no is of evil. What Christ means is that anything beyond yes and no, an oath or a vow, has its origin in evil. It comes from evil in the sense that evil provides the, the reason for it being here. And evil provided the reason for Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead. But all those are good and holy things. So just because something is occasioned by the fact that there's evil in the world doesn't make that thing a bad thing. Jesus just wants us to understand that oaths have been occasioned in this way when we think about them. This is something the Pharisees weren't thinking about, apparently appropriately. At any rate, I think, I think he's right about how he's taking this when he says what Christ means is that anything beyond yes and no, an oath or a vow, has its origin in evil. In other words, oaths arose as a result of evil or the fall. It is distrust, dishonesty, and inconsistency which make oaths necessary in the first place. If there were no sin, oaths would be unnecessary. But just because oaths are occasioned by the fall doesn't necessarily make them evil in and of themselves, as I've just explained to you. He writes, to suggest that this is the case is to commit the genetic fallacy, assuming without proof that what is true of the genesis or origin of something is true of the thing itself. After all, civil government became necessary only after the fall to restrain the social manifestations of sin. Yet civil government is not evil because of that fact. In the same way, just because oaths became necessary after the fall as a result of evil does not mean that oaths, therefore, are evil. And the example I used instead of civil government was the saving work of Christ. That was necessary because of evil. But it was good. So, we've seen this morning the seriousness with which oaths should be taken when we are called upon to do so. As a Christian, of course, I wasn't a Christian when I joined the Navy, but if I were going to join the military again as a Christian and take that oath, I wouldn't have a problem doing it. If I go to court and they ask me to take an oath in the name of the Lord, I wouldn't have a problem doing it, especially since I do intend to tell the truth. Because as a Christian, now they wouldn't have to ask me to swear an oath to do that. I'd do it anyway. They want me to swear an oath? Well, I have no problem with that. And neither did Jesus. If we're doing it the way God intended that we should. 
and without these sinful reservations and so forth. And we have no problem taking oaths because, as we have seen, truth is of paramount importance to the Christian. We seek to have a genuine righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had, as we've seen, distorted the teaching of the Old Testament on this matter. But once again, our Lord Jesus, the great fulfiller of the law, he brought the true intention of the teaching out. Why are oaths here in the first place? Why is it important that we make them only in the name of the Lord and take them seriously when we do? One final example I would give you is from Psalm 15, in which the prophet David asked this question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And then listen to part of the answer to this question. He asked that question in verse 1 of Psalm 15. And then in verse 2 he says, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. And then later in verse 4 he says, He is one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He's the kind of person who when he takes an oath, even if it costs him dearly to fulfill it, he'll do it. Even if speaking the truth costs him everything, he'll do it. Because that's the kind of person that he is. That's the kind of righteousness. That righteousness that David wrote about in Psalm 50. That's the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about here in our passage today. He wants us to be those kinds of people. As true followers of Christ, my prayer is that we'll always be among those who care more about truthfulness even in our own physical well-being. That we'll be the kind of people whose word is their bond, who do not need to swear an oath to be believed, but also won't have a problem with taking an oath if it's in the name of the Lord, like it's supposed to be. So when we're called upon to take an oath, may God give us the grace to be faithful to that oath. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is, it is my hope that I've properly explained what I believe the intentions of our Lord Jesus really are in this text, which at first can be hard to understand, but when you take them in the larger context of his teaching and of the scriptures, it's pretty clear what he means, what he wants from us. It's also clear to me that I'm incapable of being this kind of person aside from your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit in my heart. That's true of all of us. Oh, Lord, we're just not capable of being this sincere and truthful on our own. We pray that you will grant us, through the power of your Spirit, the kind of sincerity of heart that you call us to have as Christians. Forgive us for the ways in which we do lie, in which we do fail to keep our word, and help us to endeavor by your grace and for your glory to be truthful people in all things, to be the kind of people whose yes or no is good enough, and the kind of people when we make an oath everyone knows will fulfill it, because we love you above everything else. 
Make us those kinds of people, I pray. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not yet come to know you as his or her Savior, it is our prayer that you would please do for that person what, what you've done for us. Help them to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And that the only hope for their salvation is the work of Christ, who, as I said before, was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life as the God-man, who then died as the sacrifice for our sins, taking your wrath upon himself for our sins, who rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life, who has ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us and rules over the universe and is willing to, sa- to save all who come to him in faith who relinquish their own efforts and trust only in your grace, only in what Christ has done, and not in themselves to be saved. Oh, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, that they will bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and trust him as their Savior. By your grace, we ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.